Well, then, with a view to the help of God and his blessing, let's turn to Exodus 16 again. And reading again at verse 33, Exodus 16, verse 33, where Moses says to Aaron, Take a pot and put a noma, or two litres of manna in it, and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. So take a pot, put a nomer of manna in it, and lay it up before the Lord. <clears throat> now over the last two Sabbaths, with God's help, we've seen the Lord's special provision, his miraculous provision for his people in the wilderness by providing for them bread from heaven, made in heaven, sent from heaven, and brought down to them by angels. And that bread, as we've seen, is a symbol of the Word of God. In its two forms, the Word incarnate, which is Christ himself, and the Word written, which is, of course, the Bible, as it's progressively written through time. So it's a symbol, this manner, of Christ and his word. But the account of the provision of this manner finishes, like I said, in a bit of an unexpected way. Now, God commands Moses to take a pot. Now, we're not told in Exodus anything about the pot itself, but interestingly, well over a thousand years later, the writer to the Hebrews in the New Testament tells us that this pot was made of gold. So he's to take out a golden pot and to fill it with a day's ration of manna, the two litres, an omer, and Moses or Aaron is to place it before the Lord, that's how it's written in one verse, and before the testimony is how it's written in another verse. So it's to be laid up in a special place, which is described as before the Lord and before the testimony. Now I think the first question, just to lay a kind of groundwork for ourselves, is to understand what these expressions mean themselves. What is it to lay it up before the Lord or before the testimony? There's an implication that there is some kind of localised presence of God beside which the omer of manna would be placed. But that is something that we haven't come across yet in the book of Exodus. The only presence of God when I say only of course it's a glorious presence but the only or the single presence of God that we read about is his presence in the pillar of cloud and fire. That uh, wonderful token of his presence with the people which was guiding and protecting them by day and by night. A luminous cloud, the appearance of a cloud by day, but the fire coming luminously through it by night. That is the only sign or symbol that they had 
of God's presence. So the question rises, where is this pot? When it is laid up before the Lord and before the testimony. Well, the answer to that is uh, very straightforward because in the space of a few weeks between this provision of manna and uh, coming to Sinai and leaving it, a special place of worship will be built. It will be built at God's command and that place of worship is called the tabernacle or because it contained two compartments, sometimes it's referred to as tabernacles, as David said, the tabernacles of thy grace. Now this was a, a special place of worship which was to reflect Christ and the work of salvation, which we'll see another time. But these two compartments, or these two tabernacles, were called first the holy place, and then the innermost part, which was called the most holy place, or the holy of holies. Now in that holy of holies, there was just one piece of furniture, which is the famous ark covenant. Now of course the ark itself had not yet been made either, but in just a few weeks time the tabernacle would be built and the ark of the covenant would be made as well. And the ark of the covenant was distinguished by two things in particular. I mean it in itself was a picture of Christ too, we'll come to that. But there were two things in particular that distinguished it. First of all, on the top of it just above what was called the mercy seat, was the luminous cloud of God's dwelling. In other words, the cloud that led the people and protected them actually came down to dwell in the midst. So the Lord's presence was inside the sanctuary, in the holy place of worship. Even although the high priest could only enter that place once a year, still they knew by faith that the presence of God was there. In their midst, he was to be approached and he was to be worshipped. He was able to be approached and able to be worshipped. The second distinguishing thing about the ark was what was inside it. And the main object inside it were the two tablets of stone which God had given to Moses with the Ten Commandments written written were told by the finger of God these commandments were placed inside the ark so sometimes the ark would be called the ark of the testimony because these commandments were a testimony to the holiness of God they were a testimony to us of what God is like and a testimony as to what he requires us to be be holy as I am holy and as your life conforms to the Ten Commandments, so you will conform to me. So once the ark is placed inside the Holy of Holies, we have two things. We have the Lord's presence and we have the testimony. Now obviously when God tells Aaron here to place this golden pot before the Lord and before the testimony, he is telling him to place it where God is, where the throne of God is dwelling in the midst of his people and to place it there 
inside the ark where the Ten Commandments are. Quite a remarkable place in which to place a golden pot of manna. Now the second question is why exactly is it to be placed there? After all, it is an exalted place to put it. If it was simply to be a reminder to, to the children of Israel, there would be more obvious places to put it. In fact, when you bear in mind that the Holy of Holies is a place that they never even saw, it becomes more unusual still. They're simply to believe it's there, to remember it's there, and to let it speak to them every time they contemplate it. A bit like Joseph's bones, which were left for, in a sarcophagus for hundreds of years. Israel never saw those bones, but they were to believe they were there. They were encouraged by the fact that they were there. They knew they would take these bones to the land of promise. They were a kind of sacrament to them, even though they couldn't see them. Well, the golden pot was like that. But why? Why place it in the Holy of Holies, in the very presence of God, inside the Ark of the Covenant? Well, the first reason is definitely for a memorial. We're told that in verse 32. Moses said to Aaron, take a pot, put an omer of manna in it, and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. And that's so that they could look at the manna by faith and remember the bread with which God had fed them all the way throughout their sojourn from the land of Egypt until they arrived home in the promised land. Now I don't want to say too much on manna as a memorial because recently we looked at the importance of memorials and remembering what the Lord has done for us. The importance of recalling God's works and reflecting on God's works. The importance of remembering that. In Psalm 103, forget not all the gracious benefits which the Lord hath bestowed on thee. Forget not or positively remember all, all the gracious benefits that the Lord has bestowed upon you. So remember them. And then reflect on them. Psalm 105 says, Think on the works that he hath done, which admiration breed. Admiration is just another word for worship. Uh, to admire, really in the highest sense, is to admire God, to worship God. Think on the works which he hath done, which admiration breed. What works? Well, his wonders as well as the judgments all which from his mouth proceed. The things he has said and the things he has done, think about them. That breeds admiration. The tendency of our generation is definitely not to reflect and to meditate. Um, speed is of the essence. Um, visual information is so important and People move quickly and people have an ability to move quickly 
from one image to another. The fatal defect with that kind of mind is that it isn't able to process properly and deeply. That's why the minds of many people, especially many young people, and I'm not taking a swipe here, but I'm just commenting on what I think is true. The minds of many young people are quick, but not really so deep. Not really so deep. And depth can only be attained by stepping back, sitting down, lying down, as the psalmist did in Psalm 4, recalling the works of God. Letting them sit in your mind, sit in your heart, and allowing them to awaken admiration and worship of God. So think as well as remembering. Not just recall, but reflect. And of course, to help recollection and reflection, it's always helpful to record. I wonder if any of you did make a resolution after we thought of this last time, to begin to take a note of anything that God has said to you in a particular way through the Bible or done for you in the way of providence or answer to prayer. I wonder if anybody did make a resolution to begin to record these things because it's hard to recall unless you record. I mean, the important thing is definitely recollection and reflection. But how do we recall without recording? Unless our minds are very good and exercised, it's very difficult. But you'll notice that the psalmist says in another psalm, 145 this time, Thy wondrous works I will record. I will record. So there you have uh, recording, recollection, and reflection. And God takes various steps to make sure that his people do exactly that. You'll remember, I'm pretty sure I referred to the cairn of stones that was built where they crossed the Jordan. Joshua said to them, every time you see this cairn, you'll remember how God opened the Jordan for you and you crossed into the promised land. To see the cairn is to recollect and hopefully reflect and hopefully admire The Ebenezer stone was the same. Once they defeated the Philistines, which they thought they would never really do, the stone was erected, Ebenezer, hitherto has the Lord helped. So the stone is a record, therefore we recall and we reflect. And so much of what God appoints through time has this element of a memorial in it. The Passover is a memorial. The Feast of Tabernacles was a memorial for when they dwelt in tents in the wilderness. For us too, the Lord's Supper is a memorial. Now, it's a lot more than a memorial. And I'll tell you a little later on this morning why it's a lot more than a memorial. But it is a memorial. We don't just enjoy a feast, but we do recollect uh, the events of that solemn evening when Christ was betrayed and when he gave himself over to death for our sakes. It's a memorial. There's a sense in which it's reenacted for us. Each time the bread is broken, we remember that it was broken for us. So remember God's goodness. That's why the pot of manna is laid up. Now, like I said, it's a strange thing that it was not actually visible, only visible to the eye of faith. It's there. Inside the Holy of Holies, there's a pot containing the bread on which the people fed for 40 years. 
But the second reason for the pot is not so straightforward. And some parts of this will maybe get a little bit difficult, so let's ask the Lord's help just to, uh, to bear with it and to see uh, what we can learn from it. And I think in some ways the best way to do that is actually to turn forward in your Bibles to the very last book in the Bible, and that's the book of the Revelation. And chapter 2. these opening chapters of the Revelation there are letters written. John the Apostle is given seven letters to write to seven churches. The churches are very near to itself. They're all located in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. It's interesting that that's these are the areas where the church first grew and flourished. One of the churches is in Pergamos in verse 12, we have the letter to the church in Pergamos. Now, there are warnings and promises given to all these churches. But it's the promise given to this church that I want to look at with you a little bit, just because of what it says in verse 17. So that's Revelation 2 and verse 17. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now here's the promise to the one who perseveres, to the one who keeps going. That person will overcome. To him who overcomes, now here we are, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Now the stone is interesting enough but it's for another time. But for us, the relevant part is, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Now, what's meant by hidden manna here? Well, I think there are two very closely related ideas, and they're both connected to Christ. You'll remember that the, the bread always represents Christ. The manna is always our saviour. Here we're told that it is hidden from view. But even though it's hidden from view, it's still the source of our life. And it's the sustenance of our life. Christ is born. He's the author of the new life that's in us. And he is the actual sustenance of it. He is our life and he is the bread of life. So the golden pot of manna represents Jesus Christ himself. So on the one hand, if you're, if you're there in Israel, you've got the manna lying around you every single morning. And as we thought last week, you gather your portion, and that is you gathering your daily portion of bread. Christ coming to you in his word. At the same time, you're conscious that there is a pot of manna that is hidden inside, which you're always to believe is there. <coughs> that too is the Lord Jesus Christ in his word. But what does the pot tell us? Well, the first thing it tells us is that Christ has actually entered into the holy place and into the very presence 
of God. And in the tabernacle, the, the important thing to remember here is that, that this is what Christ achieves. This is what he attains. This is where he goes as our high priest. It's not where he comes from. Of course, he does come from the presence of God too, but that's not the point here. The point is that the golden pot of manna is Christ gone inside, back into the presence of God. He is at the right hand of the Father. That is the source of our manna. The hidden Christ. He is hidden there with God. It also tells us that he's exalted there because the pot is golden. Now all the furniture inside the most holy place is gold. There are other materials elsewhere in the tabernacle. Inside, in the very presence of God, only gold. Which represents divinity and exaltation. Of course, when Christ went home to glory, he was crowned with glory and with honour. And he was crowned with a crown of most fine gold. Of course, in the days of his flesh, he prayed before the cross. And uh, one of his prayers went like this in John 17. Glorify me, he said. This is his prayer to the Father. With the glory which I had with thee before the world was. And this golden pot reminds us that Christ is now exalted, glorified. He is with the Father, with the glory which he had with him before the world was. And again, the golden pot um, tells us something more. Not just that he's with God and exalted with God, but that he is, like I said, the source and the sustenance of our spiritual life. There's a, a mysterious and very deep verse in Colossians 3 that tells us that. And I refer to it in my prayer, uh, where Paul tells us not to be looking anymore uh, for, the, for the things of this world. He says, that's not the source of your life anymore. He says, you've got a different life. You've died. The old you is dead. You're not who you were anymore. Paul has many ways of telling us that. He tells us, for example, that we have been crucified to the world and the world has been crucified to us. These are astonishing expressions and they're very stark expressions. The world is dead to you. You are dead to the world. The, the more Christ-like you are, the more the world doesn't recognize you and the more you don't recognize the world. You're on a different plane. You're on a different sphere. You move in a different atmosphere. You have a different citizenship, a different lord, a different set of laws. You belong to another kingdom. You are from the above and the world is from below. You died. And then Paul says, your life, he says, is now hidden with Christ in God. What a strange expression that is. What a deep expression it is. What a wonderful expression it is. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now I can't help but think that the real emphasis in that text is that the source of our life is hidden now with Christ in God. Something that the world doesn't understand. Where do you get your life from? Where do you get your way of thinking from? Your way of living? 
How is it that you are who you are? How is it that, that you can be so uh, otherworldly, so Christ-centered, so focused on something else? Well, the answer to that is that your life is not like the life of people in the world. It actually comes from elsewhere. The life that you live now is hidden with Christ and God. In other words, the source of it is, is there. The, the life of God, it's interesting that this is so difficult really to just go over. You'd almost like to break that text down in itself. But we're told when it's hidden with Christ and God, God himself is the source of a life. A life that he shares with his son. And he shares it with his son in the incarnate form so that it can be communicated with us. Through Christ, the life of God flows into us. Flows into us. It flows through Christ into the hearts of all his people who are born again by the Spirit of Christ. So that the life we live now, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us and regenerated us just by touching us. He is life and he touches your heart and you live with his life. With his life. The life we now have is hidden with Christ and God. That's its source. Hidden from the eye of sense. Only available to ourselves by the eye of faith. We know that the kind of people we are today flows from the life of God that is at his right hand in the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that a stunning thought? Isn't that worthy of recording? Isn't it worthy of recalling every day? Isn't it worthy of reflection? Reflection? You know, to be, to be quite honest, I think the act of mere reflection on that fact alone would change us considerably from day to day. Just genuine spiritual reflection on that fact alone that the source of our life is flowing from a hidden Christ at the right hand of God. Of course, it is nourished by word and sacrament. Nourished by word and sacrament. When you come to the word in faith, it feeds that life. It feeds it. You grow in understanding. You grow in knowledge. You grow in appreciation. <laughs> so indeed you do when you come to the sacrament. My flesh is meat indeed. My blood is drink indeed. When we take the sacrament in faith, we are not just remembering. It's not just a memorial. It is a reception of a living Christ. And any view of the Lord's Supper which leaves that out is not a proper view of the Lord's Supper at all. There certainly is a tendency in some part of Reformed churches too, uh, or certainly Protestant churches generally, to, to see the Supper as a mere memorial, a recollection. Well, that's not to do proper honour to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a reception of Christ. The, the hidden Christ at the right hand of God is feeding you through the means of bread and wine, sending spiritual nourishment from himself. <clears throat> Some people use that as a reason for... <clears throat> saying that we should have a far more frequent uh, observance of the Lord's Supper. That seeing, seeing as it is a reception of Christ, we should, we should have the Lord's Supper far more often. 
Now, it, it is just a plain fact, and no one can dispute this really, but it's just a plain fact that the Bible does not tell us how often we are to observe the Lord's Supper. And <clears throat> all Presbyterian churches will say that that is just in the wisdom of uh, each church to, to decide, but because God did not say. But it's important to make this point, that it is a spiritual meal. And because it is a spiritual meal, God is able to make its benefit last as long as he wishes. Uh, Elijah was given a mysterious meal by an angel which sustained him for 40 days and 40 nights. The Lord's Supper will sustain the Lord's people as long as they need sustenance by it, however frequently or infrequently it is administered. Now, I'm not saying there how frequent it should be. I'm quite happy really with how frequently we have it. But my point is that its spiritual benefit will last as long as the Lord wants it to last. In other words, supposing it is held only twice a year, the Lord will see to it if you come to it properly and if you use it properly, that its nourishment will, will be suitable for you for the duration from one meal to another. But the point is just now that the living Christ blesses his word and sacrament. And you come to both like that with expectation. Lord, help me to learn. Help me to grow, to deepen in my understanding, and as I do, to deepen in my appreciation of who you are and of what you have become to me and what you will forevermore be to me, my life and the sustenance of my life. What more can we ask for than that? Life and sustenance. I think it's worth pointing out too that this bread of course, at the right hand of God, uh, doesn't diminish. Uh, as we receive it, it, it doesn't diminish. It remains there, uh, a fresh pot of manna. The manna stayed fresh because the Christ on whom we feed stays fresh. Now, it's often said, and I'm just going to say something here that... Uh, it's my own personal view on the matter, but anyway, I can, I can bring it before you and just leave it at that. It's often said that this um, manna that was stored up in the Holy of Holies miraculously remained fresh. Now, I actually think that the better way of looking at it is to, to look at it the other way altogether. There is nothing in the manna that would actually make it decay anyway. You're conscious that when, they, when the, the children of Israel gathered the manna every day, if they didn't take the manna, then the following day it had miraculously just gone rotten. Um, and it, it had bread worms. Now that's an unusual thing to happen for any bread. In fact, on the day before the Lord's Day, it didn't happen at all. It stayed fresh. Now, the miracle is not in the bread staying flesh. The miracle was actually in it going rotten. The reason I have for saying that is because there is nothing in the manna that would make it decay. Decay belongs to this world, and it belongs to sin. Everything that has been created is prone to decay now in this universe. 
that's true of spiritual things and physical things. There's just a proneness to deterioration and decay, not the manna. The manna is unique because it was actually manufactured in heaven by itself. It is a heavenly food, immediately from the presence of God, brought down by holy angels. There is no reason why ever, whatever why that manna should decay. It would remain in the state that God made it. It belongs to an unfallen, sinless world. No decay in heaven. None whatsoever. And hence the miracle was not in the manna being preserved fresh, but in the manna decaying on some occasions. So the freshness of the manna is a reminder to us that the one upon whom we feed and the truth which so enriches our mind and gladdens our hearts is a never-failing supply. Christ is always fresh and new, therefore we ourselves are fresh and new. It's an amazing thing that the Lord is referred to as young in heaven, and his people are referred to as being young. Uh, the Lord's people are always young. Sometimes when you see people advanced in age, and I think we have representatives of them here too, when they're advanced in age, they stay young because they stay close to God, and there's this kind of youthfulness about them. It's, it's a very attractive kind of youthfulness that's with them because they're always fresh with the Lord. Well, that's because their inward life is being renewed day by day. And when this shell and this carcass of a decayed body is taken away, well, that will be revealed in its fullness and glory. They're youth. They will appear young and they will be young, forever nourished and supplied by a new life from the Lord Jesus Christ. So that fresh manna reflects Christ. Christ's endless life, which he imparts constantly to his own people. So if you take all that together, the pot really is the exalted Christ at God's right hand, the never-failing source of the spiritual nourishment of all his people. But there's more than that. You notice this promise in Revelation 2. Now, if you've still got your Bibles open there in front of you, it says that to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Now, if you read all the promises to all the seven churches, one thing that you'll discover is that these promises are only enjoyed when your race is won, when it's finished. To him that overcomes, to him that endures, to the one who makes it to the end, I will give. And then he proceeds to describe something that belongs to heaven alone. Now there's so many examples because it's true in all the churches. For example, he says to the church in Ephesus, to the one who overcomes, I will give him to eat from the tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God. To Smyrna, he says, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. That's future. The church in Thyatira, he says to her, to him who overcomes, and keeps my work to the end, I will give him power over the nations to rule them with a rod of iron. 
so they shall be dashed like potter's vessels. That means going to heaven and reigning with Christ. The church in Sardis, to him who overcomes, he shall be clothed in white garments, and I will confess his name before my Father. Heaven again. The church in Philadelphia, to him who overcomes, he will be a pillar in my God's temple, and I will write on him the name of God and the name of the new Jerusalem. In Laodicea, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I overcame and sat down on my father's throne. Now, I think you'll agree. Looking at all these promises, there are ways. There's none of these promises that we have right now. None of them. They're future glory, and aren't they glorious? All of them are glorious, well worth recording. Well, they're recorded already. They're worth recalling and reflecting on. But the manna is no different. I will give him to eat of the hidden manna. The hidden manna that, of course, is in the presence of God. I will give him some of the hidden manna to eat. In other words, the hidden manna of Revelation 2 is not so much a feeding on Christ now by word and sacrament. The way John writes about it is, it's a portion that's still awaiting us. It's, it's, a, it's not Christ now received by faith, but Christ in the future, at last, received by sense and by sight. I will give things to eat that cannot be eaten just now. Not our portion in this life, but our portion in the life to come. And I believe that the spiritual Jew thought about it in exactly the same way. I think when they looked inside there, by faith, remember they couldn't go in, but when they, when they considered in faith that there was a golden pot of manna, I don't think they just remembered. And neither do I think that they just said, well, we're still being fed. I think they thought, we shall be fed too. A, a day will come when the veil is taken away and we will be in God's presence and we will feast with him in a way that we cannot in this life. And that exactly, friends, is what it brings before us. First of all, that one day we shall be in the Holy of Holies too. And that's quite a thought. Uh, when the final state is achieved, there's no veil. When the tabernacle of God is with men, it's with men in the final state in such a way that we all behold his glory. We all behold his glory. There's no veil separating the innermost presence of God from the outermost presence. These things just stand for a time. There's a progression in the matter. In the tabernacle, only one could get inside. Now, by faith, there's a special sense in which we all see ourselves with Christ. But that will give way, in the final state, to a new state of affairs altogether, when all the Lord's people, as priests, will be serving the Lord in the beatific vision, seeing him as he is, and at last being like him. Isn't it a thought to think that the veil is gone, that you are with God, 
And this wonderful privilege of being in his actual presence will be yours if you're a Christian. That is your hope. That is your expectation. And at that time, you will indeed see him as he is and you shall be like him. As I mentioned in the prayer, no sin to dim out of you and no sin to hinder our appreciation of what we see and our gratitude. And as the Lamb leads us to the fountains of living waters, we're also told that he feeds us from the midst of the throne. Isn't that a wonderful expression? He feeds us from the midst of the throne. There he is, himself in the presence of the Father, where he brings us, no longer by faith, but actually, really, bodily, in heavenly glory, into the presence of the Father, and from the midst of the throne, feeds us. In other words, feeds us with God himself, who is our life, sharing the life of God to a fullness that we, that we couldn't in this world. We just can't. We're not up to it. Our minds are not up to it. Our bodies are not up to it. You'll remember a, a, a famous occasion in Samuel Rutherford's life where he felt so full of the presence of God that he felt he was about to die. He felt he was about to die. Now, I haven't experienced that, friends. I, I hope and believe I have experienced the presence of God and sometimes in a very special way, but never, never to that extent. But he, he felt in reflecting on it afterwards, that he, that he would have to, in a sense, die to be able to take any more of it. God will give us a new vessel, a new body, new capacities. Sometimes I describe it as a new hard drive, new abilities to comprehend and understand how wonderful that will be when God takes us there. That's why the psalmist says, At thy right hand are pleasures evermore, pleasures of knowledge and experience. With them, we are satisfied. Um, I, I, I think, too, it will be fair to say that we'll understand our Bibles then as we don't understand them now. The, the, the Word of God is something that many people say won't be needed in heaven. And I understand that point of view. I'm not dismissing it. I know why it's said, that it's a pilgrim book. It's, it's just there to get us home. But... Does that really do justice to the word of God? Do you think when you get to heaven you can shut this book and put it away? Is that really what you think? I tend to think of it a bit differently. This word is forever in heaven settled fast. Peter tells us that it lives and abides forever. I know for a fact as well as from experience that it contains depths that None of us have plumbed. And I also know that it's just too precious to God's people to be folded aside. I would rather think of it as always containing what God wants us to know. And that in more and more fullness we will get inside it, see what's underneath it and what's behind it. This book so precious to us in life, I think, will still be precious to us in glory. So the hidden manna is the portion that's laid up for us in glory. How great's the goodness thou for them that fear thee keeps in store. Just one final word, just two minutes, one final word. The ark actually ended up with three objects inside it. 
the law, tables of stone, the pot of manna, <coughs> and Aaron's rod. And these are three very interesting objects that all tell us something about what Christ is to us as our teacher, as our priest, and as our king. The law reminds us that Christ is our king, and he will be our king forever. Some people quote a, a text in 1 Corinthians that indicates that he won't be our king forever. He will be our king forever. That's not what the text in Corinthians means. He's our king now, and he will be our king forever. Aaron's rod is a reminder that he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In glory, we'll be conscious that Jesus is not just our king, he's also our priest. And every single blessing we receive, we will always receive through his priesthood. It doesn't finish. Priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The pot of manna reminds us that he is a prophet and always a prophet, feeding us forevermore from the midst of the throne of God. Inside the ark, a reminder that our Saviour is prophet, priest and king. May you have the hope, grounded in faith in Christ, that a day will come when you will partake of the hidden manna at God's right hand. There's no way you can unless you learn to feed on it now. Come to Christ in faith. You'll start feeding now. And what a feast there will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let us pray. <clears throat> o Lord our God, we realise with humility and with gratitude that our lives are even now hidden with Christ in God. We pray to know hunger and thirst, for you are far more willing to feed than we are to eat. We pray to open our mouth wide and to receive more of these wonderful things that thou hast in store for those who fear you. Bless us all, bless our meeting, bless the day to us and come out with us in the evening. In the Saviour's name we pray. Amen. Our last uh, singing is in Psalm 36. Psalm 36. Verse 5 Thy mercy, Lord, is in the heavens, thy truth doth reach the clouds. Thy justice is like mountains great, thy judgments deep as floods. Lord, thou preservest man and beast. He is so conscious there of God's goodness uh, throughout the congregation. How precious is thy grace. And of course, that wider view of grace makes him. Focus on the narrower and special grace to his people. Therefore, in shadow of thy wings, men's sons, their trust shall place. And here they are, they with the fatness of thy house shall be well satisfied. From rivers of thy pleasures thou wilt drink 
to them provide. Because of life, the fountain pure remains alone with thee. That's where we get our life from, from that fountain. And one day in that purest light of thine, we clearly light shall see. These five, four stanzas, sorry, that stand at <coughs>